Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. So last time we looked at this young church when they gathered together and they prayed for boldness in the face of persecution. After Peter and John's encounter with the Sanhedrin, they sort of figured out persecution from here on is going to be guaranteed. How do we respond? And from what we saw, they were unified, they were compassionate, and they were committed to serve Jesus well. And that's exactly where we're going to pick up today. We're actually in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. Haven't we seen this before? Luke is giving us another update on the state of the believing community. They're now a few thousand stronger, remember, after that scene Peter made on the Temple Mount, they had a whole bunch of new recruits. It sounds a lot like what we read in chapter 2, right after Pentecost. The first thing Luke tells us is that this young community was miraculously unified. How does this assortment of thousands of people from all walks of life, from all over the world, get along in this new community based on a new faith which none of them understand? The only answer is the Holy Spirit. It is only the Holy Spirit which can keep them together. Back when we looked at Ephesians 4, this was back in December, I think, Paul called this kind of unity the unity of the Spirit. This is a miraculous kind of unity that despite differences, even despite misunderstandings and immaturity and all those things involved, the people stick together. They live life together. They care about each other. But of course, the unity part is not what any of us are thinking about when we read this verse. Am I right? We're all thinking, Chad, I know you said back in chapter 2 that this isn't communism, but it sure sounds a lot like communism again. There's a reason that Luke starts by saying that they were of one heart and one soul, and then that they shared their wealth in the same breath, in the same sentence. Think about it. They just prayed for boldness as one. Luke said they prayed with one voice. They know they're going to face persecution together. They are sincere friends. And so naturally, what they are doing is they are helping each other get by. They are voluntarily sharing their wealth to help the vulnerable people in their community. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a couple verses. But the point here is that sharing their wealth was a natural consequence of living life together. This was a natural consequence of their fellowship. They saw needs and they answered them. And the truth is that when Luke says that they had everything in common, it's kind of hyperbole. That's not exactly how it is, but he really wants to give you the the strong impression that they were really united in this way. We see later in in chapter 5 and elsewhere that people still had property, but they managed it in such a way that they could bless those who were in trouble. And this was all totally voluntary, and so it isn't that everybody gave up everything. What Luke wants us to see is unity and that these people are generous. Verse 33, 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so in the midst of this community, the apostles, particularly at heart at work, and Luke tells us here that there are two characteristics which are dominating their ministry. They are power and grace. And when I read this, you know, the first thing that came to my head is this is a direct answer to prayer. Because remember, the community, they just prayed for boldness and persecution. And in that prayer, they trusted that God's power and grace would bless their ministry. And here they are. They're still testifying to Jesus. They're still bold. And as they anticipated, God has come through for them. This has everything to do with what we covered last week. God is faithful. God has followed through. I think this is 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So as we were talking about, they see each other as family and friends. There's no commandment to do this. And we need to remind ourselves that in this context, they lived in a world without any sort of government aid, without any sort of safety net. And so having become a part of this new Christian family, the wealthy among them recognized that they have needy brothers and sisters. And so to honor Jesus, they sold their property in order to support them. Collecting for the poor was already a crucial part of Jewish practice. And if you remember, it was even built into the tax system in the Torah. It was mandatory to give to the poor according to the Jewish law. But what's happening here in the church is love. It's not law. This isn't mandatory. This is naturally what happened. And I think it helps if we give it maybe a little bit of context so we always think about the middle class, right? Like when, when, a, when a politician is running for office here in Canada, they'll talk middle class, middle class, middle class, because everybody thinks, hey, we're the middle class. He's talking about me. Scholars estimate that the middle class, which would have been people who had some property or land, was only about 10% of people in the Roman world. The rich, which tended to be super rich, constituted just about 4%, maybe up to 7%. So that leaves us conservatively with 83% of people who were desperately poor and faced squalor and starvation at any point in time. And so one of the most important tasks for the church in any time and place is to respond to the issues at hand. It doesn't do the church any good to respond to last generation's issues because that that ship has sailed. The church is always looking at what are the needs around us now? What are the needs in our community now? How do we meet them? And for the early church, material poverty was far and away the number one need. So if you can't tell, I'm really trying to drive this point home because I think we get really defensive about this one. And I have heard all sorts of pastors just try to explain it away or try to convince people that this was a bad thing. Is Luke at all suggesting that this was a bad thing? At anywhere here or in chapter two, not at all. There's no suggestion of that. We get defensive because we're materialists. 
and we're proud of it, okay? <laughs> That's just who we are. And so it, sometimes these things kind of make us uncomfortable. I think maybe there's another way to think about this, and this com- is coming sort of out of Mark's sermon, because if you remember, Mark told us a little while ago about Bishop David Taves, right? I think I have a picture of him here. So if you're not familiar with his story, I think this helps us with this issue. Um, back in the 1910s and 1920s, Russia was devastated by a civil war. This was a civil war which came right out of the First World War. So the, the Russian Empire had been going through intense suffering for a very long time. And at that time in the Russian Empire, there was a large Mennonite community living just north of the Crimea in what today we call Ukraine, but it was just a part of the Russian Empire at the time. And during this revolution, these Mennonite communities, these colonies, they began to suffer terribly. During the revolution, their territory switched hands, but by and large, the Mennonite Mennonite communities were being controlled by anarchists. They're people whose goals were to tear down the government. And so these anarchists would come into the colonies and they would rape and they would pillage and they would murder people in large bands and terrorize people. By this point, a number of Mennonites had already made their way to Canada in the previous generation or two. And those Mennonites who were already in Canada, they knew what was happening to the people who stayed in Russia. But by and large, and this is the truth, and we don't always tell this story this way, by and large, they did not care. In fact, leaders in a local church in the valley area here, which will remain nameless, declared that the people in Russia were getting what they deserved and God was only punishing them for their sins. So at the time in the Valley area, we had a bishop. We had the Bishop David Taves. And he was actually, a bishop is just a guy in charge of a bunch of churches instead of one church. That's all a bishop is. And he happened to be the bishop of this church. And David Taves saw saw the whole situation differently. And he personally took it upon himself to negotiate with the Canadian government to fundraise to save the people who were trapped in the chaos in Russia. He committed to CPR to repay $1.7 million to transfer 20,000 Mennonites from the Russian colonies to Canada. If you adjust that for inflation, that's 25 to $30 million that he promised to pay to CPR. And as a result, more than 20,000 lives were saved. People were brought out of the colonies and they moved to Canada. My grandma was on the first boat to Canada. She was on the first train to stop in Roster, and I have a picture of it. I've showed it to her before and said, can you pick yourself out? She was two at the time, right? Those who remained behind, not everybody made it out. They were largely destroyed because in the 30s, Stalin started the Great Purge where ethnic minorities were eradicated, Mennonites included. Later, the government of Canada decided to ban Mennonite immigrants. They were sick of us. And so many of the Mennonites who were trying to come to Canada from all of David Taves' efforts, they went instead to South America, and this includes Gustavo's wife Susan's family. And Gustavo has told me, Bishop Taves, our bishop, is a hero in the Mennonite communities in Brazil as well. 
So just as Mark told us, Bishop Taves was only told that the debt was paid on his deathbed. And so let's do this, a show of hands. How many people here are aware that if the Holy Spirit had not worked this miracle through Bishop Taves, that we wouldn't be here? That's almost everybody in the room. (laughs) So I ask you, can you even imagine the property that had to be sold in order to pay that debt? To raise $35 million through the 1930s. Bishop Taves lamented that some people refused to pay anything while other people sacrificed a lot and and took on poverty in order to pay the debt that they committed to. So can you imagine the sacrifices people made and the hardship they took on to save 20,000 lives? Families suffered terribly, but was it worth it? The church responds to the needs in the times, and they do that to the glory of God. And so I hope this kind of makes sense. The same thing that was happening in that first generation church, meeting the needs of people struggling in desperation and poverty, is the same thing the Holy Spirit did in David Taves in the 1910s and 20s. The last thing in our passage, but just so I don't skip it, is that when people brought this money to the church, the money was given totally to the apostles. It says over and over, the money was laid at the apostles' feet. So it was up to the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, to decide where the needs were and how the money was used. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're now introduced to a whole new character, and this guy plays a big part in the whole history of the early church. But, you know, I can't help it, and I have to admit it, that every time I see the name Barnabas, I think about Norm McCallum's car. (laughs) Maybe you know what I'm talking about. He said he, he named his car Barnabas because he would use that as an in to start explaining to people what that means and witness to them. So every time I see Barnabas now, I think of Norm's car, and it's really, it's kind of funny. Norm's probably watching. Thanks for that. You know. <laughs> we get a few details about Barnabas here. First, his actual name is Joseph, but they call him Barnabas. And the reason they do this is probably really easy to guess. There's probably already 600 Josephs in the believing community. And so it's tough to know who you're talking about when you talk about Joseph. Joseph was a common name. So this is Barnabas. You give everybody a nickname. He's a Levite which means his ancestry traces back to the, to the tribe of Israel, Levi, responsible for the temple and for all the religious functions. And there's a few things we can say about Levites. Levites tended to be religious, no surprise. They tended to be wealthy. They tended to be well-educated, which makes sense given that what we see, what we see from Barnabas as we get to know him throughout Acts and even what he does here. But he's not a Levite from Jerusalem, he's from Cyprus. Cyprus is an island just northwest of Israel, and it's culturally Greek. So he's what we would call probably a Hellenized Jew. He's a Jew who comes from a Greek culture. And so it's no surprise then later in the story, he helps Paul reach out to the Gentiles. He's well situated for all of this. But what's happening here is Luke uses Barnabas as an example of what one of those 
of one of those wealthier believers who sold property in order to help the poor among them. To Luke, Barnabas was probably one of the heroes in the church. He was one of the great examples of what it means to be gospel-driven, spirit-centered, and community-focused in living a Christian life. You may be wondering, you know, why is it that, if you know your Old Testament pretty well, how come this Levite owns property that he can sell it? Aren't Levites not supposed to have property? Times have changed. It's been 1,400 years since the Torah was written, and a lot of the stuff just isn't followed by this time. So that's it. Not a satisfying explanation, but it's the explanation. So everything's going great, isn't it? Everyone's getting along. The poor have what they need to get by. Nobody has any want. The church is bold, and it's growing every day. And from here on, it's all clear sailing. End of the story. Except you turn the page. And Luke writes, but, but, (laughs) but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Of course there's a but. Some of you, this story is pretty infamous. You already know where this is going. But once again, you know, don't get fooled by the division of chapters. Luke didn't put those there. Luke didn't write in chapters and verses. He wants us to see this, that on one hand we have Barnabas, and then there's Ananias and Sapphira, and the two camps are not the same. Just like Barnabas, this couple sells a parcel of land, and they lay the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, but things turn out totally differently. And all we know right now is that Ananias and Sapphira have decided together to keep some of the money for themselves from this piece of property and then give the rest to the apostles. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So what just happened here? Why is Peter so upset? When Ananias brings the money to Peter, Peter's unhappy. He says, Satan has filled Ananias' heart in order to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, we're supposed to read between the lines a bit, but what we see is that Ananias has lied about the money. That's what Peter says. He has lied about the fact that he's kept part of it for himself. Which means Ananias told Peter that this is everything I got for the property and I'm giving it all to the church. Ananias and Sapphira, they are pretending to be much more generous than they are. And there's some really interesting language here. Notice that Peter says that Satan has filled Ananias' heart, which is a sharp contrast to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter is making it totally clear that by lying to the believing community, they are lying to the Spirit. The Spirit has created this community. The Spirit guards this community. The Spirit manages this community. And so Peter continues. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So do you catch what he's saying? 
What Peter's saying to Ananias is that nobody told you to sell the land. No one told you how you were supposed to use the money. This was all voluntary. You did this all on your own. But if it's all voluntary, if you did it all on your own, Ananias, why would you lie about it? Why would you pretend you're giving us everything when you're keeping something for yourself? And I want you to think on that for a moment. Ananias didn't have to sell his property. He could do whatever he wanted with the money. He could have kept some of it. Why would he lie? This was a deed contrived in his heart. This was all planned and calculated. He came up with it. Satan made a suggestion, and Ananias agreed with the suggestion and made a plan. Then there's that last foreboding line. You haven't lied to us. You haven't lied to man. You have lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Did that just really happen? While, while Ananias is listening to Peter, he falls over dead. Quite reasonably, everybody around freaks out. And it's quite possible that this was as much a shock to Peter as it was to everybody else who was gathered there. Now, in Judaism, burial took place that the same day that somebody died, but typically, the family would be involved in burying the family member. But here we're told that, the, that some of the young men in the church community simply wrap him according to custom and they go and they bury him right away. It's all kind of strange. I think people are shocked and I think people are afraid of what they've just seen. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And now things get really, really awkward. There's a lot we don't know about this in the background. We don't know if Peter sent a young man out to go tell Sapphira what had happened. If Peter did that, they never found her. She may even have turned up at Peter's doorstep because she was looking for her husband. She knew he had brought the money. We don't know any of this. All we know is that when she arrived, she had no idea anything had happened. And I was thinking about this. Peter had three hours to sit around and think about everything that had happened. Now what's he going to tell her? These are the perks of leadership, you know? But when she approaches Peter, it seems like Peter has made up his mind about how he's going to handle this. His plan is to be as direct with Sapphira as he can because he's going to give her a chance to come clean right away. Verse 8. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. What happened here is Peter gave her an out and she did not take it. Because Peter asks her up front, did you sell the land for the false amount that Ananias brought him? And then she just says, yes, that's how much the land was worth. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. 
Can you just imagine? I'm sure Peter, utterly dismayed, he knows exactly what's going to happen to her. And at that moment, it's like a movie, the young men arrive at the door from burying her husband. And then Peter lets her know, point blank, you're next. Peter's question is crucial to understanding what is going on here. Ananias have agreed together to test the spirit. They think God's spirit won't know that they're lying. They doubt the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, and they decide they're going to put him to the test. Immediately she fell down and breathed her last. When the young men came forward, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I think that fear is a very, very simple fear. If you think you can get by with a secret life outside of the, outside of the sight of God, you are deluding yourself. God is not to be tested. God's not going to be fooled. Curiously, this is actually the very first time in all of Acts that we see the word church. You've probably heard this before. We don't really use the word correctly. The Greek word that is behind the word church here is ekklesia, and that means called out ones. It's the community that gathers together. And in our language in English, and and you've probably heard this before, we've made it into four walls and a steeple. That's not actually what the word means. The word means you guys. But when we look at this whole Ananias and Sapphira situation, we take a step back. It's helpful for us to first admit that this isn't the way God normally does things. Now, we believe that God is just, and we believe that God will hold all evil to account. But dropping dead on the spot, it's pretty abrupt, and it's pretty obvious. And I think that's exactly the point. God is making an exception in this case of Ananias and Sapphira. This young church must learn to respect God. They have to know in a totally unforgettable way that sin in the church is deathly dangerous. The young men who dug those two holes that day will never forget how dangerous sin in the church is. This was, as Peter said, an effort by Satan to undermine the church. The church is young, the church is innocent, the church is thriving, but already Satan has nearly found a gap in the armor. And God's not going to let it happen. He stops it right in its tracks. So I'll ask for one more show of hands. How many of us are uncomfortable with this whole thing? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Thank you for your honesty. (laughs) I think there's another thing that helps. None of this is about money. Peter spelled it out to Ananias. No one made him sell the field. No one told Ananias what to do with the money. And so I asked earlier, why then would he lie about it? He could have just said, here's a portion of the money from my parcel of land. And that would have been it. And it would have been a noble act. Peter would have thanked him. But Ananias and Sapphira lied because this was not about money for Ananias and Sapphira. 
This was all about glory. This was all about admiration. This was all about pride. There is more glory in selling an expensive plot of land and giving it all to the church than there is in being honest and giving part of it. The money is not the problem. They could do whatever they wanted with it. The lie is the problem. As always, the problem is in the heart. The problem is when they contrived and they came up with this plan to manipulate the church and try to pull a fast one on God. They didn't do this to honor God. They didn't do this to help the needy like Barnabas did. They did this to improve their own status. And in order to even come up with this plan, they had to believe that God is so distant, God is so abstract, God is so just way out there worried about something else that he would never know anyway. But God always knows the heart. And just think about it. Think about what it would have been like in daily life in this community. They were regularly experiencing signs and wonders through the apostles as they were boldly proclaiming the gospel. Ananias and Sapphira have daily proofs of the authority of God. So how horrible and twisted and misunderstood was their understanding of God's power and righteousness to think they could sneak one by in order to look good. That's what's going on here. And that's just it. Nothing to do with money. They could have sold a mansion. They could have sold a bagel. The sin is the same. They are convinced they can get away with directly contradicting God in the presence of the Holy Spirit because Jesus taught us, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Don't lie. The church in Acts is a new community. This is a new community in closer communion with God than we have seen since the very beginning, literally. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in all of these believers. God has not been so close to his people since the garden. And it's chilling to think about that because now in this new beginning, this new beginning for the church, it takes no time for a man and a woman to be influenced by Satan to lie to God. Satan's trying to make it happen all over again. It's the fall all over again. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed and lied, God promised that the consequence of this, of confusing good and evil, would be death. And so in Adonis and Sapphira, his word is fully manifest. You can't miss it. They literally fall over dead. Satan wants you to believe that you can have a secret life outside of God and you can get away with it. It's the proverbial having your cake and eating it too. The enemy will always lead. His pattern is predictable. Did God really say? And from there, the enemy will convince you that you can have your evil desire without the wrath of God. The two are separate. But God loves you. And God will not let the enemy lure you into unrepentant sin in order to destroy your faith. God will warn you. God will leave an opportunity to repent, just as Peter did with Sapphira. He gave her grace. He basically gave her an opportunity to come clean. And ultimately, God will make an example of wrongdoing so that we, the church, may be appropriately afraid of hidden sin. 
So I have been thinking about this issue for months, and I, I didn't want to talk about it. And I knew everybody else in the church was talking about it, and oh no, I'd have to talk about it eventually. And then Ananias and Sapphira come out, and it's like, well, here we go. But you've probably heard, it was in the news, everyone was talking about it, that re- recently Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, they conducted an invis- investigation into Ravi's personal life, And they found allegations that Ravi was a sexual predator are absolutely true. And I've been following this story really closely since the accusations first came up last summer. At that point, even last summer, they seemed credible to me, and so I was worried about it. And then when they proved that they were true, I was devastated. And I don't need to get into all the details of what he was up to. They're all out there, they're they're published, they're public. But there are some elements of what happened to Ravi that I want to highlight. One thing that comes clear from the investigation is that Ravi had convinced himself that grooming and abusing a number of vulnerable immigrant women was biblical and justified. He believed he deserved it and that this was God's reward for him. So at some point, the enemy came to Ravi and said, did God really say? And Dr. Zacharias listened. Ravi persisted, and he believed that he could fool God, and he believed he could fool us all. He managed to die with his sins hidden and with all of his non-disclosure acts in place, which must have been a wonderful relief for him. But what was done in the dark was dragged into the light. His ministry is devastated. A few months ago, I got an email from RZIM Canada that the whole Canadian arm of the organization has disbanded. They don't know how to continue. The gospel is again mocked. The church is again discredited. And then think of what he has now done to his children and his widow. And so here's the truth. All of the full arenas, those YouTube videos with millions of views, the brilliant arguments and the beautiful speeches, they were not worth as much to God as the well-being of the women he raped. God is for the weak, God is for the abused, and God is for the vulnerable, and we may not like it, but God will tear the whole thing down that Ravi had built up if that means these women can have a bit of justice. That is who God is. That's who he's ever been. God has always been for the underdog. God has always been for the weak. God does not need Ravi Zacharias. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15.22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great Delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So God did not need Ravi. I hate saying it. He's my hero. 
God didn't need them. God doesn't need our heroes. He certainly doesn't need serial rapists to go masquerading as pious Christians. The church does not need that. God needs simple obedience, humble obedience. And every so often, like Ananias and Sapphira, God shows us what is at stake, and God reminds us that his justice ought to be feared. The fear of God would have kept the women Ravi harmed from being hurt. But then I can, I can sit there for a little while and I could get all fired up and angry about it. And then the worst part is that I know, I know it comes back to me. And I hate that part. Because where do I test God? You know, for Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, I mean it. It could have been a mansion, it could have been a bagel. The point was they lied to God. What areas of my life do I leave rough and unredeemed? And what areas of my life do I keep hidden because I feel like I'm going to get away with it? I have to step back and ask myself, what am I without grace? I'm nothing. Without grace, I'm nothing. Without grace, I'm a slug and I'm a liar every day of my life. But with grace, I have hope and I have life and I have the future and I have the shame off my shoulders. What Ananias and Sapphira conspired to do was really complicated. It took plotting. They had to come up with a plan. What Ravi did took years of planning and, and deception and misdirection. It would have been a lot of work. But there is a simple and beautiful truth found in the faith of Barnabas, found in the faith of, of Bishop Taves, a humble bishop of a handful of churches in central Saskatchewan. And you can disagree with me on this one if you like, but I believe it. Obedience is simple. Faith, trusting Jesus, is so much more simple than the plotting and the maneuvering it takes to keep sin in the dark. Embrace your simple faith. Be honest with your condition. Ask for mercy where you need mercy. Lean on the community where you need help and we'll make it, we'll be okay. But the promise of God is better than that. The promise of God is actually that we'll do better than make it. God will empower us. God will use us to testify to Jesus with power and our community will be covered with grace. God takes the smallest amount of simple obedience and he multiplies that. And he creates everyday heroes. You need to see how important it is as a disciple of Jesus to nurture a repentant heart. And then you need to protect it. Have the kind of heart which is quick to admit wrong. Have the kind of heart which is quick to turn back to God. Have the kind of heart that doesn't wait those three days after you sin before you ask for repentance. Have the heart that goes straight to the throne of grace so that the enemy will not have an opportunity to come with a lie. Refuse the lie. And when you stumble, you go to Jesus and you ask the community for help and you rely on Jesus to get you back on your feet. Have a humble and contrite heart. Be quick to repent instead of accepting the lies of Satan and hiding them and protecting them and building a life around them. Because secret, unrepentant sin is death. It is destruction. 
And that is the funny thing about us. The funny thing about us is that we are so flawed, but that somehow we're also perfectly Christ-like. Can you even figure that out? The Holy Spirit has filled us and has made us like Jesus. And that God in his grace, when we have a humble heart, he looks on us and sees his son. And yet we are so totally flawed. So you don't have to hide. God's not surprised. (laughs) You go to the Father in grace. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to be humble. That's it. Jesus is willing to receive you. Jesus knew what he was working with when he first called you. Dare I say that Jesus expected you to screw up. But he is loving and he is good and he wants you. And that's why he called you in the first place. He is willing to work with you and help you in your weakness. And you're going to go stronger with him because of it. Jesus is the gentle shepherd. He's patient with us. He'll go to any length to lead us back when we go astray. He is good, so we lean into him with love. We let him guide us and care for us. And we may never be famous for it. And we may never win that acclaim that Ananias and Sapphira wanted so badly. But we will find in the end when he returns and he hands out the crown of glory that those who have lived with a humble heart and a simple faith have truly been the heroes of the faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as always, we pray, have mercy on us. Father, we believe, help us in our unbelief. At the heart of all of this is such a treasure. It is such good news. Our own flaws can seem so overwhelming, but Lord, you planned for that. You filled us with your own spirit. And the difference between unrepentant sin and forgiveness is simple humility. It is simply coming back to you and giving up our weaknesses to you. And so, God, we pray that first we would have humble hearts. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would guard our humble hearts so that in our moments of weakness, the enemy would not find a gap in the armor. The enemy would not find space to come and give us a lie which will harm us. And God, where we have fallen, we come to you now and we repent. And where we are weak, we come to you now and we repent. And we ask, God, as we always ask, for your continued grace, for your continued mercy. We thank you for your wonderful patience. And we trust, God, that when your son comes for us, we'll finally see what the victory truly looked like. And that because of Jesus, we were never as weak as we seemed. We were always loved by you. And for that, Lord, for that truth, for that treasure, forever, we give you praise and we give you glory. And we thank you for the promise of life of rich life to the full. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haguemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.